Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Man, oh man, where does the time go? A week already, and we're back in front of the microphones. I look across the table, and I see Jeffrey Hudson. So I know this has to be history, politics, and beer. And another big indicator for me is there is a beer in front of me. Jeff, I'm not going to give it away, but this is a very recognizable label. What am I drinking? You are drinking Guinness Draft Stout, and... uh Thought this would be good. Uh, you know, St. Patty's Day was last week. I missed yeah. it. I didn't go out drinking on St. Patty's Day. I didn't either. Day. didn't even think about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, had no green beer. So I thought, well, even though we, we build up the American beers here, you know, Guinness Stout, that's a classic. It, that's good beer. It's, it's good beer. You could sit down and enjoy. It says enjoy chilled. I know that... Um, I, I've never actually been overseas to dr- drink this, but is it served warm? I don't think, uh, you know, a lot of times England and Ireland, they serve, yeah. serve beer uh, either room temperature or slightly yeah, chilled. Warm, yeah. We're used to, you know, we usually like very cold yeah. beer in the United States. So. Smooth. That is yeah. smooth. I, I am going to enjoy quite a few of those as we talk about this because I think I might need quite a few of these <laughs> yeah. to get through the complexity of this and also the frustration of this. Um Today's topic is going to be uh, what the confusing thing, the thing we don't like about government, uh, and we're going to try to answer some questions and try to look at the unpo- how unpopular uh, Congress is and why. But before we get started, I have a little game for Jeff here, and let me pull up my document. I call this little game Fake, Fake News from, from the Future. And what I did, Jeff, is I got in my time machine, I went to the future, and I pulled out, I read the newspapers, there were still newspapers in the future, just so you know, and I got some headlines. I didn't know there were any now. (laughs) There's a few. Um, And so I have some headlines. I'm going to read some headlines to you. You need to tell me, is that real news or fake news from the future? And then tell me why you believe that to be true. Okay? First headline. And I'll tell you that none of these deal with Donald Trump. Okay. So I try to avoid that as much. The Donald Trump road, we can go down. So try to avoid that. Here we go. First headline. It's official. Hillary Clinton wraps up the 2020 Democratic nomination. That would be fake news. That's not going to happen. You know, she had her chance. And, and uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people, in fact, I think most of the political observers thought she was going to run in uh, 2008. Uh, and Barack Obama came out of nowhere, and uh, he he opposed the Iraq War, which was a huge issue for most Democratic voters. Hillary Clinton voted for the authorization to use military force, so she lost out in the primaries, and 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 uh, Barack Obama became president. She lost uh, again, and you know she be, she won the Democratic primary, but lost the election to Donald Trump. So uh, as far as running for the presidency, uh, Hillary Clinton's not going to do that anymore. So, Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to tell you if it's fake news or not, because I want you to wait till we actually get there to 2020. Right. Um, but with, of course, I know the answer, but it reads as fake news. I mean, she's not going to get more popular. You know, if, if she could not beat Donald Trump, 
in the primaries, uh, she can't win, right? I mean, I said during the last, uh, I mean, not the prim- last election, that it was a perfect storm. The only way Donald Trump could get elected was to run against Hillary Clinton, and the only way Hillary Clinton could ever get elected was to run against Donald Trump. Um, and Trump won the it's a race uh, to votes. the bottom. It was a race to the <laughs> bottom. I think most people, whoever they voted for, held their nose and voted for that person. Okay, here we go. This one's a little bit more um, macabre here. Headline, hundreds killed in mass shooting during college football game. Wow. I hate to, I hate to say that. You know, there's, there's a, a famous book called Black Sunday, which is about a, uh, a foreign terrorist attack on Super Bowl Sunday where a blimp has exploded in the, the, uh, the uh, stadium. Lots of people are killed. So uh, it, it's certainly something that's been out there in fiction that there would be an attack. Uh, you know, there was the last uh, attack, uh, not on a school, the, the last large attack was at a uh, country music concert. So, you know, where people, unfortunately, where people are gathered together uh, tend to be targets. Uh, that one wouldn't surprise me, but it would be terribly disappointing. But it wouldn't surprise me. No, I, I agree. It, it, unfortunately, we've had people shot at a concert recently in Las Vegas. Uh, what was the final 100? And I don't even know what the final numbers well, I were. About 500 people were injured and 58 killed. And. I know some people will say, well, you can't, it'd be very hard to get those kind of weapons into a stadium, but it's not to be in a stadium. You just have to be in a building overlooking a stadium. Um, There's lots of college venues that have large buildings overlooking them, and you can look right down into the stadium, into the bowl. I hate to think that this could happen, but it's, I think, I'll say this, I think this is a better chance of this happening than Clinton winning the 2020 Democratic nomination, right. and I don't think we're giving anybody any ideas. No, uh, no, with no. this, uh, you know, that's uh, if 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 we do give anybody ideas, it should be the fact that uh, these things can happen, and you better take precautions against yeah. them. I'm, I'm sure. not, I'm not an overly creative person, so right. I don't think I'm giving anyone much of. Okay, here we go. Next one. This is a tough one. Conservative court upholds Nebraska's restrictive abortion law, overturning Roe v. Wade. Well, it, it's it's there, there's two parts there, um, you know. Uh, one is uh, I think Mississippi just passed a law which which mm-hmm. says abortions after 15 weeks will be illegal, and uh, and the scheme of of Roe, uh, what they did, if you actually look at the decision, is totally protect a woman's right in the first trimester. So. I don't know if you would uphold a restrictive law if you would have to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, that could happen, uh, but the fact is, if it if it is <laughs> overturned, a lot of people don't realize this. What it does would go back to each individual state. That's the way it was before Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade. <laughs> made it a constitutional right of a woman to choose an abortion in the first trimester based on the right to privacy. And there are other earlier decisions about reproductive rights. So, uh, and 
every poll I've ever seen upholds, uh, the majority of Americans uphold, believe that a woman should have that right in the first trimester. I'll give you an example of that. South Dakota passed a law prohibiting a woman's uh, uh, choice to get an abortion, except when her life was in danger. And South Dakota, being a later state, has this thing called an initiative where people can, on the ballot, uh, they can get something on the ballot and vote for it. So the people of South Dakota themselves, one of the most conservative states in the union, uh, once their legislature passed this restrictive abortion law, uh, had an initiative and overturned their own state legislature. They said, no, a woman will have the right to an abortion and the legislature can't prohibit it. So this is the kind of situation you'll get into if Roe versus Wade is ever overturned by the Supreme Court. It won't eliminate abortion even in a state like South Dakota. So could happen. Uh, I'm going to say... Less than 50-50 chance of that. Okay, so there we go. Three fake news stories from the future. I happen to know the answers to all those, but I'm not letting you in on them. You'll simply have to live long enough to see them. Okay, I'm going to throw this off to you, Jeff. Um, This is really your brainchild of a story. I really liked researching this. Um, It was interesting. I learned a lot. I formed a theory or two. Um, I had my opinions. Some of my opinions were confirmed through my research. And quite honestly, some of them I found that my opinions really weren't standing on a whole lot. So uh, the order in which we attack this problem and even defining the issue and problem, I'm going to leave that to you and I'm going to uh, ride shotgun. Okay. Well, I wanted you know uh, us to think about the weirdest fact about American politics and government. And I talk politics and government for uh, over 30 years. I had a a lot of chance to ponder what was good, what was bad, and what was just strange as heck. And here's what I think is the strangest fact is. Virtually nobody approves of the job members of Congress are doing at any given moment, uh, certainly in the past uh, uh, decade. And yet almost all of those members will be reelected. And this is strange. Uh, you know, we can look at real clear politics. Uh, they aggregate polls. And there's other sites that do this, 538 and stuff. When you aggregate polls, uh, you tend to get a better, you, you tend to aggregate out uh, some bias that are inherent in several polls. And, and you get a better picture of overall. So I looked at uh, this week, what's uh, Trump job approval? And he's got a 41.8% job approval, and, uh, and he has a 53.5% disapproval rate. And you go, wow, man, I mean, that's not, that's not very good for this point in, in your presidency. You know, you got more than 10% of the people uh, more uh, disapproving of what you're doing than approving. But then I looked at the aggregate congressional job approval. And in real clear politics— Congressional job approval sits at 14.9%. Well, the disapproval rate sits at 74.6%. So, you know, 
Trump is not a popular president. I don't think even real clear politics is not a left-leaning site. It's probably a right-leaning site, and they're saying he's not. But, you know, what there is bipartisan consensus on, and independents agree too, is Congress sucks. <laughs> I, and I, I, I went back a little bit and looked at polling and, and uh, a group called Public Policy Polling uh, decided that they would compare. It's a little bit of trolling, but they decided they compare Congress to various things and to see which one was more popular. So I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to go down a little bit of the list here, Matt, and, and they compared uh, of things that they compared Congress to. And you tell me if you think Congress or the thing that they're comparing Congress to is, is more popular. How about Congress versus lice? Which do you think <laughs> is more popular, <laughs> according to public policy? Uh Congress has to be more popular than headlights. Well, you you would be wrong. Uh, actually, uh, Congress got nineteen percent of that, and <laughs> lice got sixty seven percent. All right. Well, there's got to be something. Congress right. is yeah, so, okay. Congress or colonoscopies? <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go with colonoscopy because at least I get something out of that, right? I get a test and I get. Answers right. to it might save my life. Uh, absolutely, and and you know what? Uh, that's what the respondents to this poll said. Uh, colonoscopies uh, almost twice as popular as <laughs> Congress. How about this though? Here's another medical procedure: Congress versus root canals. <laughs> hey, oh, root God. canals or Congress? Which one? Congress has to be more popular than a root canal. T- tooth pain is bad pain. It is, but again, I think a lot of people were thinking along the lines of colonoscopies. Yeah, that, it's you know, if you need it, you need it. Yeah. something, and root canal is considerably more possible. All right. Now, how about Congress and the band Nickelback? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am going on it. I see a trend. Um, I'm going to say that Nickelback is more popular than Congress. Yes, but barely. <laughs> Would say something about both Congress and Nickelback. Congress at 32%, Nickelback at 39 So Congress was sort of in a running against Nickelback. How about Congress and used car salesmen? Oh, geez, I, I, don't, I, I know used car salesmen. Used car salesmen have to be more popular than Congress. Yeah, and they are considerably. They're yeah. uh, uh, almost twice as popular yeah, as Congress. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Now, Congress didn't do, you know, uh, there were a few things that were less popular than Congress uh, meth labs, <laughs> communism, and gonorrhea were all less popular than Congress. So, you know, uh, you know, not to discourage the members of Congress too much, you are more popular than gonorrhea. <laughs> I, have, I, I have an observation after all this. Um, well, you mentioned Trump's popularity rating uh, at 40%. and 41.8? Uh, 41.8. Right. And Congress is down to 19. It's virtually- 14.9. It's, it's almost impossible for a president to go much below 40 to 30% because there's a core- party loyalty that I mean, think even Nixon during Watergate was you know just under 30 right right I mean just because you're a Republican or a Democrat people are going to support you um so when you see Trump at 40 percent that's really low but 
Congress breaks the barrier, yeah. a party doesn't matter. No, it's it's a bipartisan yeah. bipartisan consensus. That's, we we all think, and and that's one of the weird things about it, because you're right, you're right about the president. You're only going to go so low, and your core supporters are going to say, "Hey, I voted for that guy. Let's give him a chance," you know. And even Richard Nixon in the throes of Watergate, there are people, and of course Nixon did do some good stuff, and they're going, "Well, he did some good stuff," and but you know, Congress, there's no benefit of the doubt there, man. <laughs> 14.9. And by the way, I think that's a pretty good day. I've seen Congress at 10 on certain days. 10% job approval rating. Yeah, I was looking at the I would quit my job. If 10% of the people I was working for <laughs> thought I did my job well, I would, I'd quit it. I'd go, well, well, first of all, somebody would fire me. You know, well, if they I brought you in and said, Jeff, you know what? You are doing such a poor job. I want to compare you to gonorrhea. <laughs> <laughs> and you are more popular than gonorrhea. Yeah. However, Lice is getting a better rating. <laughs> so you. I'm sorry we're going to have to let you go. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And and so that's weird as heck. Just the fact, you're right. You pointed out you know, very astutely that, you know, how do you do this? Because you're, you're losing... People that, you know, your political partisans on both sides, they're all saying Congress stinks. And that's weird in and of itself. But here's the weirdest thing. I looked up 2016 reelection rates. And in the House, 97% of the members of Congress, the members of the House of Representatives, got reelected. And in the Senate, 93%. So you have this... Everybody's saying you're doing a terrible job, and the voters going and putting you back in there. So it's the old, uh, uh, you know, I think that quote was attributed to Einstein something, but uh, sometimes, but doing the same thing over and over again while expecting a different result. You know, they continually do terrible according to the American public's estimation, and the American public keeps putting them back into their jobs. To me, this is the weirdest, strangest fact about American government. And mine is going to dovetail really nicely into yours. Um, and one of the strangest facts that I think about American history is the two-party system. I understand why we have a two-party system. We talked about that in the last podcast, and I think we're going to go into that a little bit today. But if we look at the history of the United States, we had a two-party system, but the two parties were rather fluid. One would leave, another one would take over. Um, today, the two-party system, is they're locked. Um, the Republicans and the Democrats are completely locked in, and there is no viable way for a third party to overthrow one of the two other parties. I'm okay with a two-party system, but... I want to be able to change the one of the parties if need be. Um, and it seems that the interest of the two-party system is to keep voters away, um, to have small voter turnouts, and almost to bore people to death, to make people like, to me, that low congressional approval rating is almost a positive for the two parties because it makes people feel like, what's the point? Why am I voting? Why am I participating? It's a rotten group of apples. I don't care. And people get apathetic and they don't go out and champion a grassroots candidate. They don't go out and run for office themselves. Why would I want to be part of such? So 
to me, it's that these two things really dovetail nicely together because of such a low approval rating, I think is part of the driving force why we only have two parties. Well, yeah. And, and I think you hit something that, on something that's very important. And, and that's the link between the citizen, the voter, and the political process and the decision makers. And I, the parties at one time, I think, used to link, that's what they're called in political science terminology, they're linkage institutions. And, and they, you, your political party orientation uh, might include, you, you know, hanging out with your neighbors, going to particular clubs and picnics, and, and uh, you know, you'd be educated about certain issues, and there was this sort of a social aspect to it. I think that's, that's gone. And I don't think, well, uh, what the the polls show us is more and more people identify as independent. They are not identifying as Democrat and Republicans, and and those are not the links they once were uh, in, in getting voters interested and informed about politics. I think, like you said, I think most people are are turned off by the two parties. Neither one of them. Is uh, has over a fifty percent approval rate. Neither the Democrats or the Republicans right now. So what does that tell you? I think that this is a little bit what Obama tapped into in two thousand eight. This sort of fresh new voice that was going to take the old Democratic Party in a new direction, and people were energized over that. They felt a newness, a freshness. Um, I was. That's one reason that. He'd be Clinton in the primaries as well because people wanted something new. Right. Um, I wasn't alive during the time, but I have a feeling that this was the same sort of energy that Kennedy brought to the 60s to a new generation of uh, Americans who were, you know, um, looking at old Democrats like Truman um, and FDR. And this is an, a new, young breath of fresh air. And he barely beat Nixon. But he did win, and I think Obama. But now we go back to the last election, and Trump and Hillary Clinton. These did not. I mean, inspired a certain group of people, certainly on the well, right. Well, but I think, yeah, I think, I think Trump would be the the new face there. Someone who is uh, not from a political background. What were there? Seventeen candidates in the yep. Republican Party. And you know he knocked off all of them in the in the primaries and the caucuses, and he didn't talk like a politician. I think people uh, thought he was something new. Uh, so again, I think Trump's and and, and Trump was uh, mainly a Democrat in his positions and right. in his contributions before he uh, ran. So it wasn't some kind of party. You know, loyalty, the voters in the primaries were rewarding. I think it was, they were rewarding something uh, different. But, so, I, you know, I agree. I think this link is, is, is gone. People don't think they can affect their government. And when they don't think they can affect their government in a positive way, uh, you have problems. You have problems in the United States. Well, there's a couple different reasons why I think we keep getting the same old people in Congress and the same old jo- uh, low job approval ratings. But incumbents, uh, incumbent is just a term that means people that are already in office. Uh, 
uh, they win so often for some obvious reasons that are just structural and you can't avoid them. Name recognition. You know, I know that guy, you know, whoever he is. And, uh, and franking privileges. And what that means is they mail stuff out. And you, our listeners here, probably got something in the mail that says, you know, what their Joe Blow is doing and radiantly describes what they're doing in Congress, probably on a few issues that have been poll tested <laughs> in, in their district. But it makes you think uh, basically what they're getting is government paid advertisement. So those things we can't prevent. But I think there are some things that are a little more insidious than those things and gerrymandering and fundraising. And I think we need to talk about them. Now, you're uh, more of the historian. of. Can you tell us how gerrymandering started? Yeah, actually, technically, it should be called gerrymandering, um, but because the guy's last name was Gary. Um, but it, we've t- turn, turned it to gerrymandering. And gerrymandering is all about drawing lines for congressional districts. Um, every 10 years when we take a census, um, it's up to each state to redraw the congressional lines in that state um, to represent that state in Congress. So if your Congress, if your state, based on the population, has 20 members of the House of Representatives, you need to draw 20 districts in your state to get those 20 representatives. Now, the odd part of this is that the party in control in the state legislature is the one that gets to draw the lines. That seems like uh, the chicken, you know, letting the fox guard the hens. Um, And what happens is they draw lines that favor them. Now we get two basic concepts here. We get the the idea of packing and the idea of cracking. So what you want to do with your base is draw lines that take your base and put them all into one district, or at least enough in a certain district where you know you can carry the vote. Then you want to crack the opponent's strong numbers. So let's say you know in a certain city that political party controls that particular geography. Well, if you can put that city into three or four different congressional districts, you can then crack the opponent's strongholds and diffuse them into different districts. And again, the party in control can win elections that way. That's why you get congressional districts that look horrible. Matter of fact, they call it gerrymandering because they said the district looked like a salamander. And so you get gerrymander out of that. Uh, Both sides do it right now because the Republicans control most of the houses uh, in the state level most states are gerrymandered to favor Republicans simply because they control most of the state houses. Right. And, and you know, in the Constitution, there's there was a big argument over what our legislature would look like. It was decided that, you know, there'd be a Senate and all the states would get two representatives. In the House, the, the representatives would be based on population. So, but then, then you have to carry that out, you know. How do I do that? How, how many representatives should there be? And the first apportionment act was passed in 1792 and signed into law by George Washington. And the number of members in the House was at 105. Now, if you think about the population back then, 105 was a lot of representatives. And um, that's one of the interesting things that has happened as 
as time has gone on in the United States, has become more populous. Now, basically what happened after that is with every census, every 10 years, as you mentioned, we would enlarge the size of the house. All right? Right. So, you know, and this stops... And your state may gain or lose members in the House. But mainly they were gaining because you kept, so, you know, and it wasn't until the Reapportionment Act of 1929, uh, which accepted a previously established idea that there's going to be 435 seats. Okay. So now you just got 435 seats. The population of the United States is going to keep going up and up. So now a district population size was under 50,000 at the beginning of the republic. It's now over 700,000 people. So that's an interesting thing. And there are a lot of people that say that that, that's not right. Let's let's increase the size of the House of Representatives to get that old link between the people and their government. Now, I'll throw a fact in here, then I want to ask you a question. Um, When you look at representation in Congress um, for California— one representative represents about 700,000 people because there's 40 million people in California. If you look at Wyoming with a little over 500,000, they get one, so there's one person to 500. Because everybody gets at least one. Every right, so th- it's one. not equal. So my question for you is when the drawing of the lines, does co- is the Constitution specific in who is responsible for drawing those lines or is it simply throwing it to the state for the state to decide for themselves? Well, that's a great question, and it it uh, it doesn't it, it deals more with apportionment than it does redistricting. And then these that's that necessitates these apportionment acts that occur at seventeen ninety two when they decide when they tell people how to do it. And the pivotal point is this reapportionment act of of nineteen twenty nine which accepted the previously established number of 435 seats. And here's also something that did. It didn't repeal or restate the requirements of previous apportionment acts. And the, the, the previous apportionment acts said that districts should be contiguous. In other words, they should touch each other, compact, and equally populated. It didn't say that. And even though previous reapportionment acts, too— so this is uh, becomes the truck that you can drive gerrymandering through. The, the Supreme Court ruled that each apportionment bill only affected the apportionment period designated. So all this stuff that we had back about districts being contiguous, compact, and equally populated was gone. And that is what let out uh, this, this, uh, this possibility to gerrymander the heck out of these uh, districts and draw them in such a way that they favor one party uh, over another. There are a couple of court decisions that um, uh, limit legislature's uh, ability to do this. Uh, In 1960, there was a decision called Baker versus Carr, and basically the Supreme Court decided that even though state legislatures would draw these lines, they were subject to judicial review. They, that, that question was uh, what they called ju- uh, justicable. In other words, courts would have supervision, and that's created some problems, created some recent problems right here in PA. 
but the Supreme Court has already said courts can supervise that process. And then the famous uh, case, Westbury versus Sanders. Uh, what happened after the civil rights movement, during the civil rights movement, uh, the Southern legislatures were drawing districts that had different populations. They were basically trying to limit the influence of a growing black vote. And in 1964, the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Uh, these districts need to be the same size. And they said one person enunciated the principle of one person, one vote. So in that sense, uh, those are limits con uh, on gerrymandering, but uh, they, districts don't have to be contiguous. They don't have to be compact. They, don't have, uh, they generally have to be equally populated because of that uh, Westbury versus Sanders ruling. So you get really, really strange-looking districts, especially with the advent of computer technology that helps you draw these in such a way where your guy's always going to win and the other guy's almost always going to lose. And uh, yeah, and when you gerrymander things, what you're doing is you're creating a more extreme candidate. Um, you know, if you look at members of the House, if you are gerrymandered to, let's say, the Democratic side, and there's 70% Democrats, you can be really, really liberal. Matter of fact, the more liberal you are, the more likely are you are to win the primary. And the primary is what matters. The primary is going to be the election because you already know what's going to happen in the general election because the district has been set up that way. Right. So you will see that in the House of Representatives, you have a much more hardline uh, Republicans and much more hardline Democrats. Um, in the Senate, people are more moderate because they have to campaign over a whole state that is Republican and Democratic, not just in their district that has been gerrymandered. Um, the Supreme Court is actually has a case in front of it right now in uh, out of the state of Wisconsin. Um, I don't know if you were planning on talking about this case at all. Um, the case, the Supreme Court has wanted to deal with gerrymandering in like a, a concrete way, but has been unable to do so because number one, the court does not like to step in and take power away from the state that has been delegated to the state. Um, and he, they would like to see a democratic process solve this problem. The other side of that is this, there's no remedy for it. There's no rule to apply. I mean, this is what the Supreme Court likes to do. If it says something is unconstitutional, it wants to give a rule that lower courts can follow so that they can determine what is and what is not a violation. In this case, there really isn't a rule. Now, this case could be different because mathematicians and statisticians are now getting involved to try to put a mathematical formula to gerrymandering. So we may, at this point, as a whole other podcast, start seeing the end to gerrymandering if the Supreme Court can come up with a rule that they could apply to states to say, yes, it's gerrymandered or no, it's not gerrymandered. Right now, it's just almost like an person looking at a piece of art. It's just someone's opinion. Um, so hopefully we may be moving in the right direction, at least to start solving the problem. Well, I think we got to remember too what gerrymandering is designed to do. It's designed to make an election non-competitive. You know, in the old Soviet Union, you had elections. You could vote for this communist or you could vote for that communist, but you're going to get a communist, you know? And I'm not saying the Democrats or the Republicans are communists, but it's not much of a choice. 
You know, you, if you're in a very gerrymandered district one way or the other, well, you'll get a Democrat or you get a Republican. You know, that's what you'll get. And you talk about turning people off of democracy, and it's not democratic. Competitive elections are a principle of democracy, not elections that are, you know, uh, uh, set up ahead of time not to be competitive. The other thing about this, too, is because they're not competitive elections, who wins? Well, the, the guy there. The guy there is going to win. The incumbent over and over and over again. And I think you see in gerrymandering uh, the, the one of the very basic reasons why people don't like Congress. They don't feel they're represented. And you'll hear people on both sides, both sides, uh, the very, uh, I've heard this a lot from uh, conservatives as well as liberals. I'd like term limits. I'd like to see that guy out of there. I'd like to not have a political class that was always there in Washington telling me what to do and seems not to be accountable to me. One of the principal reasons that happens is gerrymandering. Yeah, the elections in a democracy should be the same as capitalism. It should be free market. It should be easy access to that market, a marketplace of ideas. I get to compete equally on an equal footing with everyone else, and you choose the best idea, and more ideas will percolate, more people will come into the marketplace. But what Republicans and Democrats have effectively done is shut down that marketplace. And in theory, I am against term limits because elections should be term limits. But when you gerrymander, unless there's an answer to that, the only logical solution it, are term limits. Well, you can't you can't get rid of the guy. They're right. there forever, and uh, you know, uh, and, and you know, there, there's <laughs> this gerrymandering has been really bad in in PA. That's why we're going through what we have. But uh, you know, this is a audio broadcast. But I would encourage the listeners to go look at the PA seventh district, which has been gerrymandered. It's called the Goofy Kicking Donald Duck District <laughs> because that's what it looks like. Yeah. All right. It's not contiguous. It's not compact. It's not designed to do anything but get a Republican elected. And again, picking on Republican Democrats when they control state legislatures do the same thing. The idea of gerrymandering is bad, and there's a solution for that. You know, 21 different states have a redistricting commission. And it's a, it's, a, it's a body. Sometimes it's part of the state legislature. Sometimes they're appointed by the state legislature. And they're trying to avoid gerrymandering. Right now, uh, there's bills in the Pennsylvania legislature, Senate Bill 22, House Bill 722. And what they want to do is create an independent citizens commission in charge of both legislative and congressional redistricting. And it would include 11 members uh, you'd have four members from the Democrats, four members from the Republicans, and three independents. So that's a step. Uh, I think most people would agree would lead us to a fair election process and therefore a better democracy. Absolutely. And people then would feel uh, more inclined to participate in that. Uh, one of the low approval ratings goes along with people simply don't want to participate. The game's rigged. They're all crooks. That's an oversimplification. You hear it all the time. You hear it all the time. And and an oversimpl there's also some truth to the game's rigged. It is rigged. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Which is going to, I think, bring us to the next part of it, and that's fundraising. Um, that if you have the purse strings, if you have your hands on the cash register, 
it's hard to compete against you. Well, that's right. And you got to remember why special interest groups contribute money. And, you know, some of the the members of Congress will say, well, you know, they just happen to agree with my opinion, so they gave me a little money. Okay. That's not true. That's disingenuous. Uh, money is the lifeblood of politics. Uh, in 2012, winning a House seat cost an average of $1.6 million. You got to remember, those guys are there for two years. So, what are they doing a lot of their time? Well, they're fundraising. Uh, studies they're have, constantly fundraising. Yeah, studies have shown that maybe 30 to 50% of their time that they spend there, they're asking people for money. Okay. And, uh, you know, we pay them $174,000 a year. And while we're paying them out of taxpayers, you know, uh, money, what they're spending their time, are, are they coming up with better ideas to service? Are they supervising their staff uh, to make sure that, you know, the congressional uh, complaints are being heard, uh, problems are being solved in their district? Nah, they're fundraising. Uh, in 2016, there was a, a guy, a uh, re uh, Republican congressman named Jolly, from Florida, and he was told that his responsibility as a sitting member of Congress was to raise $18,000 per day, per day, okay? And he thought that was ridiculous. Well, he thought that because it's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. And we, we can get into this argument of the chicken and the egg. Um, what is working what? Does money when you pay money to a candidate or donate money to a candidate, are you buying privilege? Are you buying access? Are you buying votes? Or simply are you follow, this This guy's going to vote the way I want him to and I want him to win. And I would say it really doesn't matter. I don't care what the chicken, I don't care what the egg is because it makes the whole thing stink. There is, it, perception is reality in this one. This much money in politics, whether you are the honest as the day is long and you never let money influence your decisions, you never give access to people who donate a lot of money, it's still the perception of wrongdoing. It's the perception of corruption that you can never get rid of. As long as this system is here, it seems to be corrupt. Therefore, it is corrupt. Perception is reality here. And if you want more people to participate, and that's really ultimately what we want, you have to be above board. It has to look clean, not just be clean. It has to look clean from the outside. Yeah. And, and again, let's go back to this problem of incumbency, the, the weird fact that we look at Congress every year in the past you know, decade or more than a decade, and we go, everybody. Democrats, Republicans, independents, go, God, they're doing a bad job. And one of the reasons we keep getting, but we keep getting the same people. One of the reasons we mentioned is gerrymandering. The other is fundraising. Because these special interest groups want to place their bet, which is what it is. They want to maximize their influence. They're not giving money for nothing. They want to maximize their influence. Well, who's likely to win? It's going to be the incumbent. But that fact in itself 
makes it more likely that the incumbent will win. There's a great website I encourage everybody to go to called Open Secrets. It has a lot of data about the amount of money that candidates candidates get and what they do for it and who gives them that money. But looking at the 2016 election, the average incumbent uh, got from uh, money, uh, they were able to raise $854,184, the average incumbent in, okay, in the House. The challenger was able to raise $140,000. Eight hundred fifty-four versus one hundred forty thousand. So, what does that do? And what gives the incumbent another enormous advantage in staying there? So, again, what you know, Donald Trump liked to talk about the swamp, and he got a lot of publicity about that. This is a swamp to me. This is it. You have the the legislature, which in the, in terms of the the Constitution is supposed to be the driving engine of the government. They're the ones that are supposed to propose uh, solutions to our problems in the form of legislation and get that legislation passed. But those legislatures, according to almost all Americans, do a terrible job, and they're there year after year after year. Why? Gerrymandering and fundraising. These are the two tumblers of the lock on our democracy. And if we're going to improve our democracy, you're not going to elect. You know, some people wanted Trump to be a strong man, and he's going to change things. He's, he can drain the swamp. That's not a democratic solution to our problems. We have a democracy. The democratic solution is for us to start to drain the swamp. Well, the solution, there shouldn't have been a swamp. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's yeah. what we're missing. The system created the swamp. You know, it's like blaming the skunk because he stinks. It's not the skunk's fault. You know, a skunk just stinks. If you have this system that we have now, you're going to have the swamp. It's just we. There's and, no. And it doesn't matter who you elect. This no, president. it doesn't make any difference who you elect. You know, this idea that you you brought up about uh, the incumbent having eight hundred thousand dollars as compared to the uh, challenger having about one hundred fifty thousand. Not only is that vastly unfair in a competition, but it also intimidates. It's one of the reasons why they call them a war chest. It's a chest that you have in case you have to go to the war. Are you really going to challenge someone who's sitting on a million dollars? You know, that is almost an insurmountable lead already. And, and who do you want? Do you want the guy who's been in, in, in Congress in Washington for a decade to, to be reelected? A lot of people would like to see fresh faces. Why aren't they showing up? Why don't they want to run? Well, look at this fundraising. Well, not only can they not... They may want to fundraise, but who's going to give them money? Right. You don't. You don't want to throw your money to a loser. Right. So somebody has eight hundred thousand dollars, and Joe Smith is sitting on a million. I mean, Joe Smith sitting on a million, and someone knocks on your door like, "Hey, I'm going to run against Joe Smith. I need some money. I'm not giving you money. I'm throwing it. He's going to win. I'm. I'm. I'm betting on a loser here. I'm not giving you any money. More than ninety five percent of the time, I'm wasting my money. Right. Right. And and remember, there's a lot of businesses, you know, there's labor unions, and other there organizations here. They don't want to waste their money. And so who are they going to bet on? They're going to bet on the incumbent. And where are we? We're the same old people year after year after year after year. And the other part that really locks in these guys to the special interest is the revolving door. 
Because while oh, they're in yeah. Congress, these special interests say, you know, you're making 174000 but if you would come to work for me as a lobbyist, you wouldn't have to run for re-election. Maybe you get $200,000 a year, and you can work as a lobbyist. And that is another way that special interests control what's happening. And I think Democrats and Republicans and independents, which are getting to be the majority of Americans because of, of what you described earlier, political parties having less pull on people, um, we all know this. So what can we do about it? Well, one, without a constitutional amendment, you can work at the state level and do what these 21 other states have and, and do what Pennsylvania is proposing. And you can support a more independent way of drawing these lines. So we can get rid of gerrymandering without a constitutional amendment. Get rid of the money is going to be a harder deal. Well, yeah, because a time a bomb went off a, f- a couple years ago with money. Um, we had something called McCain-Feingold, which was a limit on uh, campaign finance, uh, how much money you could give, and then Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission um, was a was a bomb that went off that basically corporations and unions are now people, and they can give as much money as they want, and uh, certainly Coca-Cola has more money than Matt Shockey. Right, right. Uh, there were there are a couple de- uh, decisions over time. There was a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo, which said that you couldn't limit the amount a candidate could spend on their own campaign uh, because that was a limit on free speech. You end up with guys like John Corzine in 2009, 2008, 2009, when he's running for governor of New Jersey. He spends $25 million bucks of his own money. Now, you know, uh, there's a little, he didn't win, Chris Christie. But you could limit contributions. Yes, you could limit contributions. And as McCain-Feingold did. But that uh, Supreme Court also says that because we're not limiting your contra- – we're not limiting Republicans. We're not limiting Democrats. It's still free speech. Everyone's limited in the same way. Uh, it talks about like it's like limiting the size of the billboard or limiting how loud you can play your music. It applies to everybody equally. So there, we cannot stop how much money is spent in an election. But with that Supreme Court case, they did leave alone the limits based on contributions. Well, well, what they did, yeah, you can limit contributions, but what Citizens United was about electioneering communication. Yes. And and ad- advertisements. And unfortunately, and this is another thing that increases polarization, negative, negative ads work. And if you have money to run negative ads night and day, that's a big, huge advantage. And what... what who pays for that now is not PACs, it's super PACs. Right. And super PACs can spend as much money because what Citizens United overturned was that limit and McCain-Feingold on, a, on was a running electioneering, outside groups of running electioneering communications 30 days before the, the, the election. It, it overturned that. And so now we have super PACs and what they call dark money and huge, huge amounts of money pouring in and corrupt, basically corrupting. You know, it's like you, like you said, you and me, we 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 have a little megaphone. Uh, people with millions of dollars, uh, y- y- you know, they have a sound system. They have the PA system. So to define both of those as free speech, I understand why the Supreme Court did it, but it is something that skews elections. 
to get a little bit more into Citizens United, uh, Feingold, McCain-Feingold limited um, this idea of electioneering communications um, 60 days before a general election and 30 days before a primary. And in 2004, Michael Moore came out with the movie Fahrenheit 9-11. Um, it played, it was tremendously powerful, attacked George Bush, and a group called Citizens United wanted to bring out a movie. I think they called it Celsius 4111. And they were told they weren't allowed to. And they said, well, how come Michael Moore can bring out his movie um, before an election, but we can't bring out our movie before an election? And the Federal Elections Commission said, well, the reason for that is because he is media. Uh, he is a legitimate movie making um maker making documentaries. So what Citizens United did in the next four years, they got down and dirty in making documentaries. They hired people to make these documentaries. And when 2008 rolled along, they came out, they made a movie called Hillary, the movie, and they were told they weren't allowed to show this movie. And again, they asked why? Because you are not a media company. You are a political organization. Well, they said that's not fair. Uh, they took it to court, and uh, the Supreme Court, in a logical decision, said, look, if you're going to allow Michael Moore to show his movie, you have to let other groups show their movies and print. And so, therefore, we have to open up and get rid of this restriction, um, which, in essence, through the 14th Amendment, made corporations and unions pretty much like humans, that they can spend as much money as they want to. Now, here's the problem with that. In theory, that sounds kind of good, but the problem is, as a person, I have many different interests. I have many different things I'm looking at. I may be concerned about the environment. I may be concerned about being pro-life or pro-choice. I may have a myriad of things. A corporation doesn't. They are usually very monolithic in what they want. They want one or two things that are going to benefit them. And now we've given them a microphone, not a microphone, a megaphone. Right, right. And uh, yeah, the, what it does uh, is uh, the Citizens United thing uh, decision, uh, again, sort of hurts the little guy. And there have been studies uh, on Congress, showing that where the money is spent uh, definitely influences what kind of laws that are being passed. And I think everybody, almost everybody knows this in their heart. I think we're back at why everybody, Republican, Democrat, Independent, thinks, you know, Congress is, Congress is for sale. Those guys are there forever. Uh, they don't run in competitive elections. They get money from uh, groups uh, and money in, in, in such amounts uh, that the average citizen certainly can't. I mean, it, just think of that. If we wanted to call our congressman, all right, uh, and we wanted to call him up on the phone, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I call him, say, hey, yeah, this, this is Jeff Hudson. He wants to talk to congressman right now. I mean, I don't think we're going to talk to him. No. No, we're not going to get. We're going to get the uh, you know, secretary or the assistant of the assistant director or whatever. 
if if you think someone who donates a hundred thousand dollars to a media campaign that is going to help a candidate doesn't get different treatment, I mean you'd be an idiot, and, and nobody thinks that. And and again, that's why Congress. I I think Congress to some extent has earned their their opinion. But it's also, like you said, it's the system. If we're going to change Congress, we have to change the system. And because the uh, spending, whether it's by an individual or by these big, huge super PACs on electioneering communications, they've been defined as free speech, we would have to probably pass a congressional amendment that said that spending, campaign spending, wasn't free speech. And... You know, I don't know whether that would be popular or not. It certainly wouldn't be popular. The the thing that would make it hugely difficult to pass is the people in there are benefiting from the system, just like some of them are benefiting from gerrymandering. They don't want to change it. They're there forever. Uh, A lot of them are going to get jobs from the special interest groups who would lose some of their interest, uh, some of their power in government if, if we defined campaign contributions as not being free speech, so they might not want to vote for it. But again, if you want to drain a swamp in a democracy, don't, don't expect a strong man to do it. They're not going to, a strong man might not, not necessarily want to give the people more power. They might want to be, you know, that's sort of been the history of strong men uh, throughout the ages. But we have to take over. We have to advocate for, for, um, Laws that that would would make the drawing of congressional lines much more nonpartisan than it is, uh, and uh, that we can do at the state level. We'll probably have to push uh, some type of an amendment, and it, it, who knows if it'll be passed. But there's been a lot of things that have happened in the past that people didn't think they were ever going to get passed as amendments, and no. they have. And as you brought up, the the hatred of Congress is bipartisan, and the hatred of Citizens United is very bipartisan too. There isn't one side that benefits from this more than the other side. Both sides have cash cows they can go to. Um, yeah, and, who loses out is the average guy. Right. It simply becomes an arms race. You know, you can raise as much money as the next guy. And actually what you start doing is you start mudding the water with so much money and so many uh, media ads that really – all communication is almost lost. I, we live in Pennsylvania, which is a swing state. And so during elections, we get huge numbers of ads that probably states like Texas and California never see. And I will tell you just from personal experience is after a while, it angers you. It angers you to watch another ad come on the television set. Um, and you have more polarization because right. most of those ads, the majority of them are negative. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Why would you vote for that idiot? You know he's, uh, you know he's awful. He's terrible. You know he's gonna have your children shipped to a foreign country, or you know the, the some of these the ads themselves are outrageous. It's got even more outrageous through infiltrating social media like Facebook and so forth because now there's it's so insidious people aren't even aware of it. And so in the last presidential election, you had a guy show up with a gun at a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. because he was afraid Hillary Clinton might be running a sex ring out of there. 
Now, personally, I think Hillary Clinton is capable of doing some bad things. Running a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. is not one of them. But that's where we're, we're headed. That doesn't contribute to democracy. No, and the polarization also makes us susceptible to, to what happened in the last election, and that is being manipulated by outsiders and Russian bots. And, you know, we are already so polarized. We're already so willing to believe everything because we've already seen so many ads that it's really easy to push us around and to get certain sides arguing with one another. Um, I, I have a question for you. And obviously, both of our lifespans don't go back to colonial America. But is there a sweet spot? Mine is very close. <laughs> is there a sweet spot where there was a collegiality in Congress and it really was a debating society where uh, good ideas were put forth and honest arguments were made? Well, I, you know, if you look at the the early, uh, the very early years, maybe, but very early on in Congress, you have the subject of slavery, which poisons the well in Congress, and you have, you know, congressmen beating each other, and right. uh, as you know, so, you know, with, with that argument gone, I do think that uh, after uh, the Civil War. And on into the early part of the 20th century, there tended to be more consensus. Uh, I don't think, and, and you know, I, I think this that there was a general agreement on what American society should look like. And over through the 60s and 70s and 80s, different groups have pulled and pushed on that. And so I do think there are some fractures that's showing. But the fractures are made worse. They're exacerbated by the, the, the gerrymandering and the fundraising because we get these real extreme guys. You know, most of the people I talk to, if, if, if I, I tell you what, if I go on a website, I can go on websites right now and I can think any, lots of different groups are just terribly extreme. They're horrible. Why in God's name are they advocating that? If I talk to my neighbors, I don't see that as much. I don't know what your experience is. No, you don't. It doesn't, it's not, Congress does not represent the people. I, I think, and I'm going to kind of leave my comment to end this and I'll let you uh, finish it off. Um, I do not think the politicians are at fault. I think it is the system that's at fault. The system creates the swamp. If you want to play in this game, you have to play by those rules. And politicians don't see us as one group. They see us as small pieces of demographic information that I need to connect with this group. I need to connect with that group. I need to get soccer moms out. I need to get black males under the age of 40 to vote for me. I need to get Catholics to come vote for me. And because of that, the messages start becoming polarizing in and of themselves. And the messages we get from politicians start alienating large groups of people because they don't need your vote. They're looking for very specific groups to vote for them instead of looking at us as a whole. Right. The public interest is, has been lost. Uh, we need to reclaim it. So, uh, and uh, like I said, for me, the weirdest fact is that nobody likes Congress and we all put them back there year after year. If we're going to fix anything, we're going to have to fix that first. 
Well, thanks for coming out once again to listen to us. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. Um, you can check us out. Uh, you can drop us an email, uh, historypoliticsandbeer at gmail. And very soon we're going to have a Facebook page up and running probably within the next week or so. So you can hit us up there. So until next time, uh, enjoy your beer and solve the world's problems. 